Welcome to Season 2 of Passing the Peace, featuring Amy Meyer and Nancy McCraney. Passing the Peace is a podcast with a progressive look at faith, religion, God, the Bible, and some other stuff. If you're listening right now, it only takes a few clicks to help us out. You can subscribe to Passing the Peace, you can give us a review, and you can even share the podcast with someone who might be interested. So today we're going to be talking about abortion. And I will say that I realize that this is a topic that has pretty much been exhausted because it's been around for a long time. We've been debating it for a long time. However, I have not seen or heard a theological or a biblical argument that I felt like I could really sink my teeth into. So that's what we're going to try to do today. And before we get started, I want to tell you the name of an article that I'm going to mention here at the beginning. That way, if after you listen to the podcast, you say, I want to go back and look at that article, you don't have to listen to the entire podcast again to find the name of the author and the name of the article. So the article is The Real Origins of the Religious Right by Randall Balmer spelled B-A-L-M-E-R, and that was written May 27th, 2014. So it's a sensitive topic. I hope you can hang in there for this one. Let's go ahead and get started. I am very curious about what caused you to even want to preach about this. I mean, it takes a lot of moxie. To preach about abortion. Yeah. And you have a lot of moxie. <laughs> um, but it's just one of those topics that most of us would avoid. Especially hmm. now. You know, it's so emotional and it's kind of a hot topic. And so that's my first question. Mm. Well, I kind of always want to preach about whatever's current. And we live in a state where this is maybe more current than mm-hmm. other states. And... I wasn't going to force it, but I, it was in the back of my mind that if, if the opportunity came up and if the scripture spoke to me in that way, then that's what I was going to do. And this story from Samuel popped up and somehow it just clicked, which is odd because it doesn't really. Yeah, that was my next question. (laughs) I'm like, okay, how did she get from the story of the calling of Samuel in the night to abortion. Like, that is amazing. And then, but it did. Yeah. Like, when you followed it through, I just thought that was such a nuanced move with the scripture and the issue and so powerful. Like, yes, that's right. The Bible doesn't really talk about abortion or gun rights or homosexuality in a way that our culture is so wrapped up in all of those things and and we try to force that and so I think what we have to do is exactly what you did listen theologically through these stories to to learn how how do we listen to our lives so here's the story from the bible that we're going to look at it's a story that can be found in first samuel chapter 3 verses 1 through 9, and I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. It starts out by saying, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. 
the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. It goes on to say that Eli the priest was getting up there in age. His eyesight was growing dim. And in the middle of the night, while he and Samuel were asleep, the boy Samuel heard a voice calling his name. He thought it was Eli the priest calling him. So he went to Eli and he said, here I am. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. And then it happened again. And then it happened a third time. And Eli decided that it must be God calling Samuel. So he tells him, if God calls you again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's the story in a nutshell. And you might be thinking, what does that have to do with abortion? You will find out. Uh, But first, here's a little story that I wanted to share. I have always told people that being a pastor is a really strange profession to have for a variety of reasons. One of which is that you never know how people are going to respond to you when they find out that you're a pastor. So most people, like in social settings, are extremely embarrassed about everything they just said leading up to the point to where they figured out that you're a pastor. (laughs) They get mad, like, you should have told me that you are a pastor 10 minutes ago. Most people will try to find anywhere else to be or or someone else to talk to, particularly at parties. And then there are some people, not many, but some, who will want to have a pastoral uh, care session on the spot. You never know what you're going to get. So when I started taking drum lessons at the School of Rock, I decided that I didn't want to tell people right away that I was a pastor. I just wanted to wait a little bit so that people could kind of get to know me before I told them that I'm a pastor. And that worked really well for about two seconds because somebody almost immediately asked me what I do for a living. And the problem was that I had planned not to tell them at first, but I had not planned what to do if they asked. So I just, I was taken off guard and I just said, I am not telling people what I do for a living, which was a bad idea because then they really wanted to know. They thought it had to be something really interesting. And so they decided to get together and guess, and the next time I was there, they presented me with their theories. And I can remember that one person thought that I was, I might be a Republican gun lobbyist, and another person guessed that I might be an abortion doctor. And I was like, okay, I'm a pastor. (laughs) Presbyterian pastor. And they were like, that's boring. (laughs) After all their guessing. But it was funny that they picked these um, two professions that center around very controversial topics. So the good news is that I'm only talking about the one controversial topic today. We'll save gun lobbying for another Sunday. And then maybe after that, we'll talk about the Tiffany Diamond commercial with Beyonce and Jay-Z. That's a joke. Maybe, I mean, I haven't planned that far ahead. Probably a joke. As Nancy mentioned, the Bible doesn't specifically talk about abortion in a way that would inform the kinds of conversations that we're having today. 
but there are places in the Bible where you can find some connections. Like, for example, in the Samuel narrative. So let's get back to that story. I would say that when Samuel's mother, Hannah, got pregnant with Samuel, that was the opposite of an unwanted pregnancy. Samuel might have been one of the most wanted babies in the Bible. In fact, Hannah wanted him so badly, she prayed and prayed that if she could just give birth to this baby boy, that she would give him up to the priest so that he could serve the Lord for the rest of his life. And that's what happened. She prayed, and then Samuel was born. She basically gave him up for adoption. She gave him to Eli the priest, and he lived in the temple, and he served the Lord for the rest of his life. And that's where we find Samuel in our text for this morning. The reading starts out, it says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. But then it says, The word of the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were not widespread. That's a haunting statement. The word of the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were not widespread. It turns out that the priest Eli had two sons who were also priests. We can read about them in the previous chapter. The narrator tells us that these two sons, these two priests were scoundrels. And then it gives us two examples of the kinds of things that these two sons were doing. It says that first they were taking all the best meat from the sacrifices. They were taking advantage of their job as the priests and taking the best meat. And there's a little section of the description of what they were doing that is suspiciously specific. Like maybe the author has some firsthand knowledge about about this going on. But then it goes on to tell us that they were also abusing the women who were working there at the temple. And it's because of that, it's because the women were under attack that a prophet was sent to Eli to tell him about what his sons were doing to the women. So when the narrator tells us that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, it's important to know what was happening in the background. And I've always been curious about what's happening in the background of some of these political debates. And this week I got really curious about the abortion debate and maybe what was going on in the background there. And I read this article by a man named Randall Balmer who speaks to that issue. And I, I had never heard of Randall Balmer, so I wanna just read to you his short bio so that you can kinda hear what his credentials are before I tell you what his article said. Randall Balmer is a prize-winning historian and an Emmy Award nominee who currently holds the John Phillips Chair in Religion at Dartmouth, which is the oldest endowed professorship at Dartmouth College. He earned a PhD from Princeton University in 1985, and he taught as a professor of American religious history at Columbia University for 27 years before taking his position at Dartmouth. He's been a visiting professor at Princeton, Yale, 
Northwestern, and Emory Universities, and in the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. So that's Randall Bonner. And he wrote this article, he wrote a book, but I read the article. So the article is titled, The Real Origin of the Religious Right. That's the title of the article. And in this article, he talks about how most people believe that the religious right emerged as a result of Roe versus Wade. But in his research and in his study, he's discovered that the religious right actually did not emerge until six years after Roe versus Wade, which, by the way, was a, a ruling that legalized abortion. Uh, so he's saying it didn't occur until six years after that and for a totally different reason. He said that up until that point, up until six years after Roe versus Wade, the evangelicals as a group were largely in support of Roe versus Wade. He said you could have even maybe classified them as pro-choice. And then he gives some examples. So for example, uh, right after the Roe versus Wade decision, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, whose name escapes me, but he's one of the most famous fundamentalists of the 20th century. He came out and said he was pleased with Roe versus Wade. He said, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it has always therefore seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. And then another example is from a man named W. Barry Garrett of the Baptist Press. And he wrote, religious liberty, human equality, and justice are advanced by the Supreme Court abortion decision. I was surprised by all this. And then one year after Roe versus Wade in 1974, the Southern Baptist Convention publicly affirmed their position that they would, quote, work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under a variety of conditions, including the evidence of fetal deformity, as well as carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. So it's not that every single evangelical or every single Baptist was you know, pro-choice at the time. It's just that as a group and, and what they were saying publicly was largely in support of the Supreme Court ruling. Okay, so according to Balmer's research, at the time of Roe versus Wade, the Catholics were definitely pro-life. They were definitely against it. But the evangelicals, on the other hand, were another story. And it wasn't until six years after Roe versus Wade that that changed. You'll hear more about that in just a minute. And Bonner says it's six years after that that everything changed. So here's what he says. He says that it started in Holmes County, Mississippi, with an issue involving their all-white private schools. And then it quickly snowballed into a national issue. And what was happening was that the all-white private schools 
were trying to secure their tax-exempt status. And they were having a hard time doing that because the IRS was starting to deny tax-exempt status to all segregated schools. And so the religious leaders uh, that were affiliated with those schools became very concerned and they started to actively and publicly look for a way to secure their tax-exempt status. And I say publicly because there are transcripts from different speeches that were given and different kind of conventions, and there's apparently even some correspondence, that some physical like letters that are still around that went between some of the evangelical leaders trying to plan what they were gonna do in order to keep their tax-exempt status. So as Bomber says in his article, this was a very uh, well-planned and carefully orchestrated and racially motivated political coup. And the end result was that the uh, evangelicals partnered with the Catholics under the banner of opposing abortion. Not necessarily to reduce the number of abortions, which I think is what probably everybody wants, but instead to protect the tax-exempt status of their segregated schools. Now, I know, and I know that you know, that not everyone who considers themselves to be pro-life is in that position because of racial reasons. I want to be really clear about that. But it's important to know what was going on in the background at the time when the religious right got involved with that issue. In the same way that it's important to know whose voice you're listening to. When Samuel is woken up by the sound of a voice in the middle of the night, he thinks that it's Eli. And this happens multiple times, and each time he thinks it's Eli, but in fact it was God talking to him. Sometimes the opposite happens. Sometimes people are absolutely convinced that they are listening to the voice of God. There he is. <laughs> Sometimes people are convinced that they're listening to the voice of God when in fact there's something else going on in the background. It's Eli who eventually realizes that it was God calling Samuel. And so Eli tells him, if this happens again, then you should respond by saying, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. It's a beautiful reminder to listen for God. And it's also a, rem a reminder that we know that God's voice is not always immediately identifiable. And we also know, I know from my experience, that sometimes God's voice comes to us through the voices of other people. Sometimes God uses people to speak to us. And I can tell you that one of the voices that I like to listen to, one of the voices that uh, I often feel as though I'm hearing God is the voice of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA. I have always 
felt that God does some of her best work in committees. And not that that's the only way that God works, but, but really I have felt that God does some of the best work in committees. And I can tell you that I've been to General Assembly and, and I know Nancy McCraney's been to General Assembly. I can tell you that Nancy and I have witnessed the work of God through those committees of the General Assembly. It's really amazing to be there. And I wanna share with you that the General Assembly for the past 50 years, I didn't know that, for the past 50 years has provided statements for us on the issue of abortion, largely in support of Roe versus Wade and the pro-choice movement, 50 years. I wanna share with you one of these statements. This one is from 2006, it's just a little portion of it. It says, when an individual woman faces the decision whether to terminate a pregnancy, the issue is intensely personal and may manif manifest itself in ways that do not reflect public rhetoric or do not fit neatly into medical, legal, or policy guidelines. Humans are empowered by the Spirit prayerfully to make significant moral choices, including the choice to continue or to end a pregnancy. I didn't know that we'd been making these statements for 50 years. But I want to say that for sure the PCUSA does not approve some kind of a blanket endorsement of abortion. That's not the angle that we're coming from. Uh, instead, the PCUSA chooses to address the issue of abortion in the context of the plight of the women. I, I was listening to another, uh, one of my very favorite podcasts, it's called Pantsuit Politics, and it's these two friends, they've known each other since college, they both went to law school, they both have young children at home, um, and they don't always agree. So it's this very nuanced conversation, but they had done a series um, on abortion a few years ago, and I remember being struck when one of them said, you know, we as a society have decided that the way we're gonna deal with this issue and other issues like this is in the courts. And this issue in particular is so personal and private and often so painful. It doesn't belong in the courts because the court can't, all they can do is decide legality. Mm -hmm. um, that, that it's more of what you're talking about, a committee with ethicists and ministers and rabbis and doctors and mothers and fathers and people that see this issue in all its complexity and and can help us sort of get our arms around this instead of using our arms to just bludgeon each other mm -hmm. and accuse each other. Um, and I really liked that. Like what other apparently other countries and societies have chosen that route of yeah. let, let's not just give it to the courts and say y'all tell us what's legal. When I was in seminary I participated in this chaplaincy program at St. David's in Austin and there was a woman who was a patient there who was pregnant with a baby who was not viable mm. 
and I cannot remember the reason why, but he was going to die in the womb or shortly after he came out, and there was some medical reason for it. And I was invited to sit and learn and listen. I didn't get to speak, of course, because I wasn't part of the committee, but there was a committee at the hospital at the time for things like this. I'm sure there still is. Probably the ethics committee. Yeah. Yep. And they were discussing her decision, which was that she wanted to get induced early and that she was hoping that she could hold him while he was still alive, Mm. knowing that he would die shortly after. So I was able to actually witness the people on the committee which consisted of some of the hospital employees. I believe her doctor was on the committee, if I'm remembering correctly, the OBGYN. But there were also some other people from the community who did not work at the hospital Mm -hmm. who were on the committee, including a religious person. And I just remember how long it took, for one thing. They didn't take it lightly. Mm -hmm. It, it It was a long meeting and a thoughtful meeting and in the end they decided that her decision was ethical and they were going to allow her to continue with that plan Mm -hmm. and then I ended up being the chaplain on call Wow! when it happened and so I actually got to go to the room after he was born she asked if I could baptize him which I did and He had some deformities, I remember Mm -hmm. that. He was real precious. Mm -hmm. But he did have some pretty major deformities. But the nurse wrapped him in a blanket so that you really couldn't tell too much. Yeah. And uh, he was already dead by the time I got to the room. Yeah. But she did get to hold him. And that's kind of like what you were talking about with the podcast that you heard that there was a committee and it involved some doctors and hospital staff, a a religious person from outside of the hospital and people who'd been specifically selected with many of whom had firsthand knowledge of this particular situation. And I know at at where I work, we have an ethics committee Mm -hmm. and it's just like you described. There's usually a chaplain from outside the agency or a religious person a couple of doctors from outside the agency, maybe an attorney, um, then people that are working directly with this case, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And they are long, thoughtful, very reflective conversations. Yeah. And I think it almost takes that for every situation. I think it deserves that. Yeah. You know? That it, it was six years after Roe versus Wade that the, the religious right, the evangelical churches sort of latched onto this abortion issue. And it was really based on, um, you were talking about these all white private schools that were probably religious schools or, you know, yeah. religiously based, whatever. Um, didn't want to lose their tax-exempt status, and that was happening and because they didn't want to segregate mm-hmm. so, or integrate. No, they wanted to segregate. They didn't want to integrate. Right. And so that was the real impetus, but they couldn't claim that because of civil rights and, 
you know, so that wasn't going to work. They didn't want to be obviously racist. They didn't want to be obviously racist, that's right. So they latched onto this. And I mean, wow, has mm-hmm. it worked? Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to pay attention to what really is behind this thing that has created so much emotion and so much division. And and I grew up in a fundamentalist church, and it, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, it was pre-Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. and then post-Roe v. Wade. And I, my dad was a minister, and I remember occasionally hearing about, you know, family situations in our congregation. There was a woman, uh, a very, very wanted pregnancy, you know, like, like Samuel, third trimester, early in the third trimester, or maybe midway through, the baby died. And I believe, I'm right, that because of the law, mm. she had to carry her baby to term. Mm. And... I mean, I remember, I was like 10 years old, I was horrified by that idea of carrying, you know, a, a baby that had died. It, it really took a toll on that family. They did go on to have other children, but I thought, what a cruel law. And I think that's what people don't understand, and I think that's why we have to think about this theologically, that it's not just, it doesn't just impact women that are maybe going to make bad choices. There are always people that make bad choices. Yeah. It's going to impact so many other people that need good health care mm-hmm. for reasons that are none of my business, you know? Um, the statistics are like one in four women have had an abortion or... Or, like, if you miscarry, do you wait until it spontaneously leaves your body? Or do you take a pill? Is that illegal now? Like, all these little nuanced things. The thing about this is that it's not as though the extreme situations are abnormal. I know. It's not as though every pregnancy is this way except for this small percent. It's like the abnormal things or the extreme situations are common. Right. So that's another piece I think people don't understand. Yeah, I agree. And I remember, you know, I worked for Hospice Austin being called by like Texas Oncology to say we have a woman who needs treatment from us She's 20 weeks. She wants this baby. She has other children at home. Um, but she's got to choose now. Hmm. Do I prolong my life and perhaps save my own life? Uh, or do I let the cancer just kind of run rampant and maybe lose both my life and, like, what an impossible choice. And women are having to face that and to even take that away. I don't, I, I just think it's cruel. And so anytime cruelty comes up, I'm like, well, Christians have something to say about that because that is not in the spirit of Christ. We've got to come up with ways to think about this mm-hmm. and love each other in all our messy lives and not do more harm to each other. Mm-hmm.
I mean, the few women that have told me that they've had abortions, the circumstances are so heartbreaking. Yeah. They make me weep. And it made them weep. And they, you know, it wasn't necessarily something they just, it definitely wasn't something they just did on a whim. Oh, I forgot my birth control. I think I'll run down and get an abortion. Mm -hmm. Are there people that do that? Probably. Yeah. But I think also left out of this conversation is that 100% of unwanted pregnancies are caused by men. Okay? Mm -hmm. So where are they in this conversation? They definitely need to be part of this. Mm -hmm. And I also think, and I, I mentioned this to you the other day, like I was really wrestling with this when I was in seminary, you know, we're encouraged to, you know, chew on all these kinds of things Mm -hmm. and look at them theologically. And I remember talking to a friend of mine and I said, I just don't know. I don't know what I think. And, and his response was, you know, the way God created us is how ideally we are to create life, which is intentionally and lovingly so that we can call it good. You know, God, Mm -hmm. throughout the, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, God called it good. Mm -hmm. And um, there are situations where it, you can't, you can't call it good. It's going to be a destructive thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish it were more clear cut, Hmm. but it just, I don't think it is giving birth to and raising two now young adult sons has been the hardest thing I have ever done and the most rewarding and I would never encourage someone to take that on lightly Mm -hmm. because it is the rest of your life it is your body it's your mind it's your heart it's your finances it's everything um is forever changed. Yeah. And so I think that has to be part of this conversation too. Um, we don't encourage people to uh, end a life, a life lightly, but neither do we encourage them to begin a life lightly. Yeah. Please. Right. <laughs> From two experienced mothers here. <laughs> Exhausted yeah. mothers. Yeah. yeah. And I remember asking professor when I was in seminary, you know, when I was struggling with all of this. I mean, I still struggle with it. I think it should be struggled with. Yeah. And I was driving this professor to the airport and I said, I have a question. I said, what, you know, I've been thinking about abortion and I just don't know what I think about it. You know, I, and he said, here's what I would say. I hope it never, I would wish it would never even be a decision someone would have to make. But if it was, then I want to be the kind of person that will go and hold that woman's hand while she goes through probably one of the most painful experiences of her life. And I thought, okay, I can, I can be there. Mm -hmm. That's who I want to be. We've talked about how most people want there to be fewer abortions. Yes. And it's it's not about creating more abortions. Right. That's not what it's about. And I talked to somebody fairly recently who used to be a teacher in the middle school here in Elgin. Mm-hmm. 
and she said that the curriculum that is still used, and she knew how old it was, and it's old, I don't remember the number, but it's called Worth the Wait. And she had two pregnant middle schoolers hmm. in the class that she was teaching called Worth the Wait. Wow. And she really was aware because of this experience that teaching abstinence to people who are already pregnant right. was not helping and that clearly this curriculum was not doing the job that it was meant to do because the teen pregnancy rate here in Elgin is actually really high. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously we need to let go of some of the old methods that are clearly not working and restructure and look again at how to teach. Right. And to talk about contraception, to talk about sexuality and, and just stop being so sort of magical thinking about it. Let's just don't talk about it. Yeah. And the kids won't won't figure it out on their own. Ha ha ha. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. How long have there been humans on this earth? And we've always managed to figure it out. Right. You know? Uh here we are. So I'm like, yeah, you know, come on. Let's figure out what works and and give kids the information. I remember when I was first ordained, I was living in Louisiana and I was on this panel at a school. It was like professional day. They had a firefighter and a police officer and a minister and a doctor. And um, it was in a pretty poor sort of outlying area from Shreveport. And I remember the police, and we were all women, a women professionals. That's right. Okay. And so the woman police officer, boy, she laid it on. She said, if you want to be poor for the rest of your life, and she said, I'm talking to boys and girls, but I'm mostly talking to girls here. Get pregnant as a teenager and you'll be poor for the rest of your life. And you think about the burden mm -hmm. on, I mean, look at the poverty rates among single mothers. Yes. Okay. Wouldn't we like to see that go down? Yeah. Right? Okay. So more contraception, availability of contraception, women's reproductive health. Mm -hmm. Like all of those are good things. I think we all do want the same thing, Yeah. which is justice and fewer abortions and you know healthier pregnancies and yeah. happier homes and all those things but we're working against each other and 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 I think some people you know feeling like well I've got to be you know pro-life I mean gosh who doesn't want that label that's a great label right I'm, I love life yeah and it's like a false choice and I think as you said Dig in a little deeper. What are the voices behind that? And what's the real goal? And is the goal actually meeting its targets? And yeah. I would say it's not. Right. You know? Is the goal secretly money and racism? <laughs> yeah, right. I, will want, I do want to go back to something you said earlier that these what feel like extreme situations are fairly common. Yeah. And it's so many situations, uh, health situations around pregnancy mm -hmm. and childbirth mm -hmm. don't fit neatly into a medical category or a legal category or maybe, you know, even an ethical, like that's yeah. why they, the conversations are so long and um, thoughtful when, when they happen. And I just think if we could kind of 
go back to and stay with mercy and kindness and compassion, especially around things as as deeply personal and intimate as mm-hmm. pregnancy and childbirth. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the takeaways from the sermon is that the sons of Eli were treating the women in the temple as if they weren't fully human. Yeah. And sometimes in this issue, it feels like that is the case. Yeah. And I think that is what ties so beautifully into your story, the story from scripture. These women are being mistreated and abused Mm -hmm. and taken advantage of. And the word of God cannot be heard in that. It makes me wonder if maybe the voice of God wasn't really rare in the days of Samuel, but instead maybe they just weren't listening for it. That's it for the podcast today. Remember, it only takes a few clicks to help us out. You can subscribe to Passing the Peace, you can give us a review, and you can even share the podcast with someone who might be interested. This is Amy Meyer coming to you from the First Presbyterian Church in Elgin, Texas. You can find us on our website at www.fpcelgin.org. That's First Presbyterian Church in Elgin, Texas. If you enjoy the kinds of conversations that we are having, and if you think that these kinds of conversations are important, then we invite you to come and join us. Join in on these conversations if you're in the area. And until next time, the peace of Christ be with you. And also with you. Now go and pass the peace to everyone you meet.